With school back in session for the year, it's a good time to take a look at the lessons we're passing on to the next generation of children. Are we giving them the tools they need to succeed in life? Well, my guest on the program today thinks there's room for improvement. And his new book takes aim at a prevalent blame the system cultural narrative that he believes impedes kids' ability to recognize and harness their own agency. The very last thing we want to be telling young people is that, again, these systems are so overwhelming that they've got no shot. Ian Rowe is an educator and entrepreneur and the founder of Vertex Partnership Academies. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Woodson Center. He's also on the board of advisors for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. His new book is called Agency. I'm thrilled to have Ian Rowe as my guest today on Lean Out. Ian, welcome to Lean Out. Well, Tara, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As am I. Uh, Your book was so interesting, covers subjects I've been thinking about a lot, so I'm really excited to talk today. Let's start by setting the stage here for listeners. How do you define agency, and why is overcoming a victimhood narrative so crucial for the success of the next generation of children? Well, Tara, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, and that's a great, great first question. Yeah, you're your listeners might know that I, you know, that I've run schools in the heart of the South Bronx uh, and the Lower East Side of Manhattan for the last decade, and even before that, I've worked with kids in in lots of different capacities at Teach for America, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, even MTV, you know, mobilizing millions of young people to take action. And I, you know, I, I've had this sense over the years of of what I think the factors are that really help young people to flourish or not. And I've run schools uh, for the last decade because I want kids to know that they can do hard things, that there are pathways to success, even if there are challenges in their immediate environment. And what I've sensed over the last few years, particularly accelerated in the last couple of years, at least in the United States, this kind of victimhood narrative that that's actually leading people, leading young people in particular to think that there are systems that are so oppressive or so insurmountable that they can't succeed. And I have written my book Agency to, to provide a framework that uh, obstacles are going to appear, you know, newsflash, <laughs> newsflash, um, there will be challenges, but there are mechanisms and institutions that, that can support you. So I can give a brief overview of these two narratives that I think are impeding uh, young people's ability to have a sense of agency and then get into my my unique definition. Yeah, let's do this. Let, let's start with this uh, blame the system narrative. I thought that was such a, you gave such a powerful sort of excavation of that. Let's let's talk about that first. Yeah, sure. So yeah, there, there are these two what I call meta narratives. And as you say, blame the system is the first one. And the other is blame the victim. In the blame the system narrative, that's a view of the United States as an an inherently oppressive nation that uh, based on your skin color, 
your economic class, your gender, any number of characteristics, um, you're behind the eight ball. You're oppressed. The system is rigged against you. You know, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. And that these systems are so rigged, so discriminatory, so powerful that you as an individual are powerless and that you got to have some kind of massive government intervention uh, in order for you to be successful. And so that's obviously inherently disempowering because you're basically waiting for someone else or some institution to change its way of being before you can be successful. But on the other side is what I call blame the victim. And there's a scenario that if you're not successful, it's not America that's the problem. You know, America's great. You know, America is the land of opportunity. If you're not successful, it's your fault, right? You should have pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. Somehow you're the architect of your own failure. You didn't do what you should have done to take advantage of all these amazing opportunities. And of course, the problem with that narrative is that it ignores what happens to kids that perhaps they were born into an unstable family, or they weren't supported by a faith-based community, or they didn't have access to good schools through school choice. You know, it's really hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps when you don't have those kinds of foundations in life. And so I thought, you know, that, that these two meta narratives of blame the victim and blame the system add up to a singular lie that robs young people of the ability and, and the belief that they can lead a self-determined life. So that's why I thought we need a new framework. It's not enough just to describe a problem and shout in the rain. So I define my definition of agency is the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. And so I'm really, uh, and I, I think about agency as, as like a vector or velocity, where velocity is not just speed, it's direction. So if each one of us has the ability to make decisions that we've got free will, how do we exercise that power, right? Because there are lots of people with free will that make pretty horrific decisions, right? So where does the ability to become morally discerning come from? And that's where I introduce my framework, free, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. And we can go each, through each of the mm -hmm. four, but those are the four pillars that I think if more young people were to embrace this sort of predominant narrative out there of victimhood, I think would be overcome by young people's own belief that they don't have to be victims that they can be victors in their own life. Mm. So interesting. And, and before we go to that framework, I want to go back to the blame the system narrative for a moment. So can you talk a little bit about, we've been talking about critical race theory on the podcast. How does the blame the system narrative get informed by critical race theory? And how yeah. much is, is the critical race theory being actually being taught in schools? Yeah, so critical race theory, um, you know, was... Uh, created by these architects, Richard Delgado, Gene Stefanczyk, you know, part of something called critical theory. Um, and critical, if you look at their actual definitions, you know, critical race theory um, questions um, very precepts of our country, like equal protection under the law, 
um, or this whole idea of, of, of a blind constitution. Um, and essentially what critical race theory posits is that every institution in America is born in slavery and racial discrimination. Uh, the New York Times 1619 project, which, which in some ways the embodiment of critical race theory, actually says the America has anti-Black racism running in the very DNA of the country. I mean, you think about that statement, like if it's DNA, that that is like that is intrinsic, that's central. And so when you think about blame the system, CRT basically says if you're Black, the, the entire system is rigged against you. And anytime there's a racial, uh, let's say there's a gap in outcomes, let's say in reading or in incarceration rates, it has nothing to do with individual behavior or other factors. It all has to do with this anti-Black racism. It must be due to racial discrimination, any gap. And so the reason that's important that this sort of blame the system ideology that um, creates, you know, there's one explanation for every negative outcome, and that one explanation is, is racism, means that when you're trying to think of solutions, like let's say, for example, in trying to close uh, racial achievement gaps, if you think the, the problem is racism, then it must be racist teachers or racist systems. So therefore, the solution has to be related to race as well. So that's why you see anti-bias training uh, explode in terms of that's what people are saying. We got to drive the racism out of teachers, or you see kids being separated in these things called privilege walks. Have you ever heard of the privilege? Yes, walk? I have. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but imagine. I mean, it's amazing. Some of your listeners may not know, but imagine you take a whole group of kids, line them up, and the teacher at the beginning of the class, or you know, at the head of the class, says, "If you're white." take two steps forward. If you're black, take five steps backward. And so over a series of questions, by the end of it, all the white, um, you know, more wealthy uh, male kids are standing at the front and the back are all the black, you know, more low income boys. And it's supposed to somehow demonstrate your victimization. Or if you're at the front of the class, you know, codify your, your privilege when there are all sorts of assumptions being made. So the blame, so critical race theory is, is an embodiment of blame the system because in their mind, the, the advocates of that have no other um, explanation other than racial discrimination. So when you ask, is it being taught in schools? Like, it's unlikely you're going to hear Gene Stefanczyk, um, you know, spoken about in first grade, <laughs> right? So the theory is not being spoken about. And frankly, I'm, I'm actually an advocate for discuss the theory at higher education, yeah. and, you know, because look, we should be able to talk about critical race theory, communism, capitalism, and have informed debates about whether or not these are ways of being. But what we do know though, in K to 12 schools, there are practices that are inspired by critical race theory, such things as privilege walks or, or professional development training where literally white teachers will be sent to one room and all non-white teachers sent to another room and, and the white teachers have to have a struggle session where they declare their inherent privilege and that they're oppressors. I mean, this is happening across the country. So critical race theory is not 
as a theory being taught generally in K to 12, like the actual theory, but the practices often are, and they are destructive, not only to, to white kids, but black kids. I mean, there was a, in Evanston, Illinois, there was a, a class being taught uh, where I think they were doing a privilege walk. And in the lesson plan, it said it was designed to teach the, the white kids about their inherent privilege. Like, what are we trying to do? Like, literally create white supremacists? You know, there are people who say, no, CRT, it's all a sham. No, critical race theory is not being taught generally, but the practices certainly are, and it can be very destructive to kids. Mm. And I'm curious about, like, taking this down to a practical level. So you you did uh, serve as a CEO of a network of charter schools in the Bronx for a decade. And I'm curious about this um, blame the system narrative and blame the victim narrative and what the repercussions on your students be like on a, in a practical kind of level. Oh yeah. I mean, the, uh, I just mentioned uh, the 1619 project um, and this message of America being this oppressive nation. I mean, if you hear over and over and over and over and over again, how victimized you are or how oppressed you are or how the system is rigged against you, you know, after a while, you're going to start to believe it. You know, I, I, let's let's take Nicole Hannah Jones, the lead author of the New York Times 1619 Project. She wrote an 8,000 word piece in the New York Times Magazine called "What We Are Owed," and the basic premise of the piece is that America has been racist for hundreds of years, uh, oppressive to black people. Um, there's no way to close the racial wealth gap unless there's a 14 or 15 trillion dollar reparations program. And in this piece, she says, quote, it doesn't matter what a black person does. Doesn't matter if you get married. Doesn't matter if you buy a home. Doesn't matter if you save. Doesn't matter if you're college educated. None of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering. I mean, just think about that. The 1619 Project has been adopted in schools in many, in some of the worst performing school districts across the country, Chicago, Rochester, Buffalo. And, and by the way, it's important to note, Nicole Hannah-Jones in her own personal life has done all four of those things, right? To lead a quite prosperous life. And yet somehow once deprived teaching that to young people. So when you're seeing this in schools, and this is why I fight it in my own schools, that the very last thing we want to be telling young people is that, again, these systems are so overwhelming that they've got no shot, right? And, and, and specifically, actually, as it relates to even the racial wealth gap, um, in the year 2019, 2019 survey of consumer finances, that revealed that the average white family had about $160,000 more wealth than the average black family, right? And so for some, they'll teach that and say, this is proof yes. of, of, of present day oppression and historic, the legacy of slavery. And that's it, end of story. But what's interesting is if you look at the same exact 2019 survey of consumer finances and just take into account, to account two other factors, family structure and level of education, the average black married college educated family has about $160,000 more wealth than the average white single parent family. So what that indicates is that perhaps there are factors beyond just race 
that can make a transformative difference in the life of possibility that a young person can have. And so that's why this blame the system ideology when taught in schools in this way or this impression that there are these other forces that are determinative or that factors like your race are determinative, independent of all these other factors is a, is a real disservice uh, and injustice to young people. And that's why in my view, agency provides an empowering alternative because it says, wait, 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 wait. There are other institutions that can help me craft a different path forward. Mm. And let's let's talk about those now. So I found this framework super, super interesting and useful. So you're you're focusing here, as you say, on these four things: family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. I want to start with family and family formation, which is a sort of bizarrely taboo subject in some circles <laughs> right now. And yeah. just to be clear, when we're talking about family here, we're talking about advice for young people going forward. It's not about the the family people find themselves in through sort Correct. of no choice of their own, right? So Correct. talk to me a little bit about, and we're also not stigmatizing single mothers here. I want to say that my own mother was a single mother. I owe much of my success um, to how she managed. So when you look at sort of North American families and why they have fallen apart in our lifetime, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a complex question because over the last 50, 60 years, there has been a seismic shift in the structure and stability of families. I mean, the non-marital birth rate in the 1960s in the United States was single digits, you know, five, six, seven percent of kids being born outside of marriage. So even with slavery, Jim Crow, even in the black family for generations, black families were actually more intact than even white families. But it really, in the 60s, it really started to shift where, you know, Pat Moynihan um, first identified when the black non-marital rate was about 23% in the mid 1960s. He was saying, look, crisis, crisis, crisis. You know, now today, the non-marital birth rate in the black family is 70% and it's close to 30% in the white community higher than even the crisis levels back in the mid-1960s. So it's what I call an equal opportunity tsunami, where the sort of social norms around single parenthood in particular have dramatically shifted. But to your point, and I have many single parents who um, in the schools that I lead, and many of them would crawl through broken glass to have better opportunities for their kids, regardless of the decisions that they uh, may have made in their own lives, but they are they are determined for their kids to be successful. And also there are kids who are children of married two parent households that are not successful, right? But you just cannot ignore the data about the likely success of kids being born in a, into a married two parent household. And, and as you just said, I wrote agency not as a look back, but as a look forward. So so when I make family the first F and free, it's not about the family that you're from. It's about the family that you form. So if you're a young person, you know, age 12 to 24, and you're in the early stages of making decisions about your passageway into young adulthood, you should know things like the data that says if you just get a high school degree, finish your high school degree, get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if you have children, marriage first, that series of decisions, 97% of people 
who follow that, those decisions in that order avoid poverty. And the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. It's not 100%, you know, it's not a guarantee, but as the first important set of decisions that you're gonna make in your life, it's really important that young people know that. And as you said, it's taboo. Because when I started to teach that in our schools at eighth grade, oh my gosh, you can't teach that. You're, 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 you're potentially insulting the kids because maybe their parents didn't follow that series of decisions. What is it? Do you want to embarrass them? You know, and um, you're trying to impose middle-class values. And it was just very interesting. Suddenly, all these gatekeepers who had self-appointed um, you know, appointed themselves, they were the arbiters of what they think um, the kids in our schools should should know or not know. Mm-hmm. And Many of whom are married, as you point out in the book. <laughs> you know, you're, you're Ta-Nehisi Coates, you're, you're Bill Gates, well, who's no longer married, but there's there's many people you criticize for that. Yes, and Nicole Hannah-Jones, another one. Oh yeah, Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bill Gates, interesting. He did get divorced, but they waited. They waited until their last child graduated from high school. You know, so it is very interesting. They knew that there was something about having a stable married, who knows what the dynamics were, but there was something about being married that they felt was important enough to wait until their last child. Uh, So that's in the case of Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, And I don't, you know, I don't wish uh, divorce on anyone, but it is interesting that they, um, they chose to wait. So yeah, many, many of these quote unquote elites, they'll rail against the very cultural practices that they are following in their own lives, but somehow think is inappropriate for people, particularly in low-income communities. For me, if you're gonna talk about this stuff, preach what you practice in your own life. Mm -hmm. And family is one of the first and most important decisions. And so that's why I made it the first first part of the framework. Mm. I want to spend a moment on religion now as well. I'm I'm not religious, but increasingly I wonder if uh, us humans are really kind of hardwired for collective spirituality. There is similar data here showing that religion benefits human flourishing, and you cite John McWhorter's work um, that when you you know take the view that we need a substitute for religion, like identity politics, it often doesn't work out well. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's Karl Marx who said that religion is the opiate of the people. If God didn't exist, people would create one, right? And I've always found that quote interesting because it, it speaks to this sort of organic, inherent desire for a belief in something. Like humanity needs something to believe in. And and religion, for all the right reasons, has sort of fed that carnal desire. And, um, and for, again, generations, the United States was a very religious, you know, Christian nation, but also tolerant to have other, you know, freedom of religion. But something has been happening in the last decades, and some of it driven by the, the the challenges of the church, the sexual abuse scandals, people losing belief in the integrity of these religious institutions. And so you see, when it comes to religiosity, young people, the highest rate category of growth is what's called nuns or no affiliation, where young people say, 
you know, I'm not affiliated with any religion. And that's distressing. And yet simultaneously, we see very high levels of loneliness, depression, alienation, even with access to all these communication devices, social media, it's actually having almost the inverse impact on young people's mental health. And yet when you look at the data for young people who have adopted a personal faith commitment in their own life, lower levels of loneliness, lower levels of depression. They are part of real world rituals where they regularly are seeing real people who love them, who have their back, who support them. So I agree with you. There is something that we are social beings. We're hardwired. And so this idea of agency being individually practiced, but socially empowered, a lot of that comes from the kind of supports that you get from being part of a faith-based community. And my fear is that when young people are reducing their, participa their participation in more traditional faith-based communities, that void is not going left unfilled. It's, be it's being filled by things like what John McWhorter says, woke religion, where suddenly you'll have anti-racism or critical race theory or these, these ideologies, which if you don't follow all of the tenets, you could be excommunicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, so young people are going to get this kind of spiritual meal one way or the other. The question is, what is it going to be? Is it going to be the kind of moral formation that we think is healthy, that facilitates the idea of positive self-governance? Or is it going to be the kind of moral code, a woke religion that could lead you astray to now th no longer treat humans as individuals, but instead just weakened avatars of some marginalized, oppressed groups. And, and I think we have to show young people that there's an empowering alternative to all of that. Mm. And just two last questions for you. The first of which, in, in the... Um in the education chapter, you propose a number of interventions. I, I want to just focus on the first one that uh, comes to mind, and that is replace race-based affirmative action with class-based preferences in higher education. Walk me through why you see that as important. Yeah, well, you know, the idea of race-based affirmative action, like with so many things, started off with very, very good intentions. I mean, back in the 60s, particularly in colleges and universities, even though there actually was a rising number of kids, you know, minority kids, black kids being accepted, you still you still saw pretty um, high levels of uh, or, or low levels of penetration. And so race-based affirmative action was started with the idea of let's take really talented black and other kids who otherwise might not have a shot and help them get into some of the better colleges and universities. And one cannot deny the dramatic increase. I mean, I think there are now 3 million black uh, men and women in college. And it's almost time to declare victory because in some ways the we've had a victory, but it's come at some cost. So even um, there's this kind of often what's called kind of a, a, a doubt amongst the part of black kids, like, did I get into these institutions because I've earned it or because I've just, you know, checked off some, some box in it for an admissions officer? But even more so, if you look at a lot of elite universities right now of Black, let's focus on race, of Black kids getting in, 
the description of a lot of those kids are they're first generation immigrants, you know, they're Nigerians or they're upper and middle class black kids who've had lots of privileges. And so the question is, is race-based affirmative action even helping the very people that was it was originally intended to help, which are primarily low-income um, uh, students of color, and in, in particular Black kids? And then taking it one step further, we now have an apparatus in many universities where race-based affirmative action is now a system where we're putting races against one another. So there's a big case with the Supreme Court at Harvard, where if you look at the data, it is very clear that Harvard University was deliberately discriminating against Asian students. You, you cannot look at the data. I mean, I think it's something like if you were, uh, they have, they, Harvard breaks down their admissions into 10 different categories, with the, the first category being your highest probability of getting in. Uh, and then if you were a, a, um, an Asian student in the very top category, you essentially had the same likelihood of getting in for a, like a black kid who was in like the fifth or sixth category. I mean, it's just the, 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 the number, the, it, it's just so clear. And so I think it is very likely that the Supreme Court is going to make a decision later this year to end race-based affirmative action. I think it's dead. But I think most Americans would agree, though, that in a, in, a, in a system where you only have a finite number of seats, there has to be some process by which you decide who should get in or not. I think most Americans would believe that a class-based system which, by the way, if they're poor black kids and they're and they and they're academically prepared, then they should have a shot. Or if they're poor white kids and they're academically prepared, they should have a shot. Or if they're poor Asian kids and they've academically prepared, you know, this idea that America, the promise of America, is that if you're born into a certain economic station, you shouldn't be doomed to be there. And so, even if race-based affirmative action should go away, which I think it should. I think a system of class-based or economic-based is something that would gain great support and I think would give credence to this idea that America is still the land of opportunity, even if you're born into a poor, you know, an economically deprived situation. Mm. And I want to end on this. You tell the story of a boy named Leo in the pandemic and how his school promoted an overcomer's mindset. This idea, we can do hard things, as you said earlier. Why was that so powerful? Yeah, well, my entire reason for running schools is this idea, you know, guess what? Newsflash, life is going to be hard, but you can do hard things. I mean, just think about the narrative that is steadily being fed to so many kids and adults across this country that we're traumatized or you're oppressed or you know, you've got to wait for somebody else to be successful. And Leo's story you know, was just, I thought, a very simple way to embody this idea that a school or other kinds of institutions can make a huge difference. You know, here's this kid, Leo, um, who was struggling, struggling reading, was during COVID. And yet there were a group of adults in his life who, who basically said, we've got you. Leo, we've got you. We've got your back. You can do hard things. And when he starts to sort of memorize it and say it out loud, you start to see the embodiment of what it means to internalize the idea of agency, that I have within me 
the tools of self-betterment, the tools of self-renewal. That's why I say even I compare almost a Leo to our country, right? In like documents like the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the amendments, those are the tools of self-betterment and self-renewal that exist for our country. And I want to draw a parallel to kids like Leo and millions of kids like him, that we have that too. We have that inner strength. That's what agency is. And we're not alone in doing it. That's why these institutions of family, religion, education, ultimately entrepreneurship are so important because that's where you get the strength to develop these tools of self-renewal um, and, and self-betterment. And so, Leo, I, I love telling that story at the very end. I also end the book with, um, you know, the, the story of th that shows a society that has has you know, shackled everyone to try and create equal outcomes and this sort of, no, you know, we all like Leo and millions of kids like him, they have individual agency. Like they're, they're, no one's going to end up exactly like Leo is going to be in his life long term. And that's what we, that's in a sense, but we want Leo to have an equal shot at the beginning. And that's why I've written my book that, um, Empowerment doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna end up in the same place, but it means that you've got the ability to end up wherever you want. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, it's a wonderful book. I so appreciate you making the time to come and talk about it. And uh, I thank you so much for your work. Oh, Tara, thank you. This has been wonderful. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.